everybody. Nice to be back. Thanks, uh, Joe, for helping last week. It really does help because um, being here for every single week sometimes is a little bit uh, prohibitive. So anyway, um, welcome. Week 15. Amazing, huh? Jeez. Uh, maybe someday this will end. Um, this will be the one exception to impermanence. It'll just continue uh, infinitely. So anyway, a couple housekeeping things. For those of you who may be new to this um, kind of social intimacy, physical uh, gathering or whatever we call it these days, we started it as a way to just kind of sustain a, a quality of community um, sangha during this time of uh, isolation. And so I had no aspirations whatsoever to keep it going, um, but it's it's working and I'm, I'm actually really enjoying it. So these are completely impromptu, spontaneous things. I prepare nothing, which is why I like them so much, because otherwise I tend to be a little bit on the over-prepared department. And so I just come in here and wing it a little bit, which is, I, I enjoy it a lot. And um, most of what we do is Q and A. Um, we got a couple of questions that were sent in. Andy will read those. And then most of the time, really, we just queue you all up and uh, hear from you and riff about the stuff that you want to riff on. But I always start a little bit with housekeeping stuff. Um, really fun set of interviews going on right now. There's been a little bit of a drought. Um, this in, the, in our nightclub, that, that's kind of my more so-called official site, um, we offer, at least we have been offering fairly regular webinars, and it's been a little bit of a drought on the interview department but that's rapidly changed. And so two days ago, I did a really sparky interview with two filmmakers, um, Lori Poliski and, and uh, Courtney uh, Sheehan, who are creating this really interesting kind of double uh, offering uh, podcast that they're launching. And then most compellingly, which is stalled a little bit because of COVID, a TV docu-series on anybody's dream, which is, uh, that's the title of it, which is a really interesting exploration um, that they have put together with uh, anthropologists, uh, astronomer, there's an astronomer and there's a neuroscientist, there's startup um, founders, there are dream engineers, there's um, a neuromarketer. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a neuromarketer. And so what we riffed on that was pretty cool was just things like dream engineering and dream branding. Um, uh, I mean, really kind of out there stuff, really on the edge, um, definitely. And so we recorded that on Thursday. That'll be released like today. Um, and uh, next week, I have Elizabeth Matasnamgel, who's a dear friend of mine, of mine, author of a number of books, um, student and actually wife of Zigar Kontra Rinpoche, and a really amazing teacher, really wonderful human being. So Elizabeth is set up for next Friday. Last night, um, I caught my friend Chris uh, Wallace, literally, who's, as we speak now, he's on a plane to Portugal. So he's moving to Portugal. Talk about a buzzer shot. I've been trying to get Chris for like seven uh, months. And we finally got him literally as he was um, racing out the door. Um, but I had a one-on-one -on -one interview with him live. There was just, it's remarkable. Chris is an amazing guy. He's, he's a, an Oxford uh, PhD um, Sanskritist, um, wrote two seminal books. One is called the uh, Tantra, Tantra Illuminated, which is basically a history of the tantric traditions. And I found that one 
interestingly enough, particularly illuminating because uh, I'm a student of Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, and this tradition doesn't arise out of a vacuum. It's actually derivative of the Shaiva Tantra, Nandu Shaiva Tantra um, traditions. And so that book is an amazing contribution for anybody who wants to know about Tantra and its origins, and especially for the Tantrikas, the, those who study Tibetan Buddhism. Um, this is a really noteworthy text to, to give you an idea of where you know, this tradition, where the Tibetan tradition actually comes from, how it was derived. But the book that we riffed on for two hours was, I think, his little masterpiece. It's called the, the Recognition Sutras, Illuminating a Thousand-Year-Old um, Spiritual Masterpiece. And this is a book that is a commentary on 20 verses, 20 sutras, written by an amazing Kashmir Shaivist master, Nandul Shaiva Tantra. His name is Temaraja. And for those of you who are interested in things like uh, the more refined kind of absolute level teachings of the Buddhist tradition, like Dzogchen, Mahamudra, if those words mean to anything to you, this Recognition Sutras, which is a 400 page um, behemoth, is really, it's really quite something. Um, it's not just the elegance of Chris's or Harish, that's, that's his um, preferred name. It's not just Harish's extraordinary translation that's amazing, but um, the kind of cultural translation, in other words, his commentary, really speaks to me. It's, it's resonant with my kind of way of approaching it, where he draws a very wide lens, drawing from uh, psychology, um, neuroscience, uh, some physics and the like. And so he brings in all these different strands to support this amazing view of the non-dual traditions. Um, and so if you haven't read this book and you're interested in the way, what I refer to, this is my terminology, these kind of trans-religious traditions, um, this, is a, this is definitely worth reading. The other one that is somewhat along the lines of this is uh, the, the Kaduma experience, which is written by uh, also my dear friend, Z. Shalom. I interviewed him last year. But these, are, these trans-religious texts are really compelling to me because they're, they really transcend the traditions that they come from. I mean, in a very real way, like Dzogchen, for instance, is a trans-religious, trans-Buddhist tradition. It's so foundational, it's so um, true that in, in our deepest sense, it actually transcends, or if you look at it the other way, it doesn't matter, up or down, subsends, even Buddhism itself. It's just so irreducibly foundational. And when I read something like the Kaduma experience or the Recognition Sutras, I get super jazzed because it's like um, exactly what my training, my experience um, has shown me, taught me, being expressed in a completely different vocabulary, whether it's post-Kabbalistic Jewish mysticism, which is the Kaduma, primordial Torah teachings, or these, this uh, um, uh, Nandul Shaiva Tantra. And I find it just incredibly refreshing because it expands my horizons. It, it augments my understanding of um, my non-dual uh, exposure in Buddhism with a completely different narrative, vocabulary, set of practices. And I, I just find it super exciting. And it also challenges me in some ways because on one level, it's unavoidable to do these kind of cross um, cultural or comparative religion things. Oh, that's just, you know, that's their version of this, that's their version of this. 
and there's some viability to doing that. That's kind of cool. But it, I find it really helpful because it stretches me a little bit. Um, you know, having to look at these tenants from different lenses is, I think, just really, really um, powerful. At least it has been for me. And one of the things, there's so much that Chris and I covered. I mean, we really, um, in a period of two hours, covered a tremendous amount of material. But one thing I did want to just briefly talk about that I think cannot be overstated. And in many ways, um, the, this 400-page book sort of says this um, kind of meta-narrative over and over and over. And we need to hear it over and over and over. And that is the utter simplicity and extra ordinary nature of the awakened state. Lucidity in its foundational dimension. Now we're not just talking about lucid dreaming, we're talking about lucid living, lucid mind, awake mind, aware mind, awakening in the deepest sense. And what we talked about quite a bit is um, the absolute importance of understanding um, the immediacy and the simplicity of the awakened state and how easy it is, especially in the West, for people to get a little bit of, um, I don't know, infatuation, obsession with having, you know, big spiritual experiences. And, and this doesn't in any way demean um, big spiritual experiences, but as powerful as these, what are called nyam, I riff a lot about nyam, Tibetan word for spiritual experience. As important as these uh, experiences are, they are in fact temporary, that's by definition always has a beginning and an end. And the reason they can become somewhat problematic is because very often they're pretty juicy. They're, they're you know, kind of what we're buying. It's like, this is what I'm after when I'm on the path. And while it has a provisional validity in terms of markers for progress, so to speak, these things can become really the most difficult and subtle of all spiritual traps because they feel so good. They're just, they're just so juicy. It's like, yeah, this is what it means to be awake. And so what Chris talked about a lot that, that I tried to draw out of him is that one of the main reasons we miss and continue to miss the real genuine authentic um, awakened state is simply because it's so ordinary, literally extraordinary. Um, and in fact, and this is the real mind bender, um, this relates to the immediacy of it all, under any circumstance, under any condition, there is nothing ever whatsoever that is not the awakened state. And so you know, there's so many ways to say this. And in the Recognition Sutras and Chris, they, he says it 400 different ways, basically in 400 pages, that there's only nirvana. That's all there is. There's only the awakened state. Um, samsara is just not recognizing nirvana, hence Recognition Sutras. Um, there's only truth. Um, falsity appears when you don't experience truth completely. There's only the awakened state. Delusion only takes place when you're not awake completely. Um, there's only wisdom. Ignorance is just partial knowing. And so this has just tremendous power because completely in the spirit of the non-theistic traditions, the, the traditions that proclaim that what you're looking for is always already present. Um, this is a central ingredient of that, that you don't have to go anywhere. You only have to relax, open, and fundamentally recognize. And in the Tibetan tradition, of course, this is replete, especially in classic texts like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where literally five, six, seven times in that book, it is said, recognition and liberation are simultaneous. 
an interesting has a media application to lucid dreaming, right? Recognition uh, uh, and liberation of a non-lucid dream, instantaneous. So this definitely connects to the nighttime dream. But the thing that, that I wanted to just very briefly reemphasize here, because we, we will literally need to hear it over and over and over to believe it, that what you're looking for is hiding in plain sight. There's nothing that's not it. And so, you know, at some point in our life, we will actually realize that, that it's unbelievably simple. Confusion is what's complicated. That's the complexity. Reality is unbelievably simple. Um, and so whatever we can do with, with whatever system, philosophical, non-dualism tradition or otherwise, to kind of gently slap us on the side of the head over and over and over and just say, you know, you, you're already awake. You just need to realize that. You need to recognize that. And the only thing that separates a sentient being from a Buddha is recognition. And so I highly recommend Chris's book. Um, those of you who are students of Mahamudra or Dzogchen, you will not find yourself nodding your head all the time. Yeah, you might be tweaked a little bit by what seems to be potentially theistic proclamations, you know, like, like the big assertion of the non-dual traditions from the Hindu approach is, um, you know, the actualization of self, big S. And Buddhists have a lot of, you know, I think uninformed problems with that because, well, you're trying to get rid of the self. Well, this is just purely a nomenclature trap because the phenomenologically, the experience of big S self is no different than the experience of no self. It's just they have a different kind of narrative and framework for housing it. Um, so give this book a read if you haven't. It's a really an, a remarkable tome with tremendous applicability. That's the other thing that Chris and I talked about a lot. Why should we be interested in, in Kashmir Shaivism? What does it have to offer the modern world? It has a lot to offer. Because yeah, the storylines are different. You know, this text was written over a thousand years ago. Modern storylines are a little bit different. But fundamentally, the underlying narrative, that never changes. That's perennial. And that's why these timeless traditions are in fact timeless. Um, and so what Chris does, not only as a uh, liturgical literal translator, he also culturally translates this text um, into vocabularies that I think are really um, kind of resonant and applicable for the Western mind. Um, and so, yeah, I'm big into the stuff these days. Uh, uh, you know, a small pitch for a program that I'm going to be doing in December, my first full-on program on non-duality. And I'll be drawing from, from non-dual Shaiva Tantra, from the Kaduma tradition, from Buddhist non-dual schools, even from some Taoist traditions. Bhagavad Gita and others that have these kind of non-dual streams to really unpack what this thing called non-duality is. Um, so anyway, that's my riff for today. Um, just wanted to say a little bit about that. I think Andy's got a couple questions that are lined up. We'll start with those and then open it up to you all and, and see what it is that you want to talk about. So fire away. All right, great, thanks. Um, first question. Uh, could Andrew please share some resources to help understand insomnia yoga? Well, uh, that's my thing. So I, there, there are no official, um, this is my neologism. No, neologisms are, are um, branded words, so to speak, new words. So insomnia yoga, that's my term. And there are no references that you'll find because I made this up. But the idea, um, 
let me just say something about the practice. The references really, I mean, I'm trying to think of in my own stuff where you can find me overtly talking about it. Um, I think if you understand the, like in the dream yoga book, um, the first one that, that came out a couple of years ago, if you understand, if you have access to that book and you work with the meditations that are presented there, you get a basic idea of it. But parenthetically, uh, or one way to summarize in Sanya yoga is, is fundamentally to turn it into a yoga. In other words, usually what exacerbates insomnia is an adversarial relationship to sleeplessness. Uh, we've all had it, I've had it. You know, you wake up in the middle of the night, you can't go back to sleep, and it's like, oh crap, tomorrow's trashed, I'm screwed. And you kind of start to wrestle with your mind. Insomnia yoga is simply working with it. And there's so many ways to work with it in a contemplative yogic way. Number one is just changing your relationship, changing the narrative, um, and then learning how to fundamentally befriend your mind um, and even celebrate it. And so, and this is not a patronizing statement. So now when I have what I used to call insomnia, and I'm not exaggerating with the way I approach it, instead of the usual, oh crap, it's literally, it's like, oh wow, oh wow, my mind is doing this. Why do I have to freeze frame that with this negative term in all its associations called insomnia? Don't even label it. That's a problem of reifying that condition using language. So I don't, I don't even think about insomnia anymore. It's like, wow, look at my mind right now. It's going effing crazy. I mean, look how many thoughts I have. Look at these images. This is amazing. In fact, interesting, when I was talking to Chris yesterday, there's a beautiful Sanskrit word, um, chamatkara, which is beautiful. It, it literally translates something like um, uh, um, awe, amazement, like what the Tibetans refer to when they say e maho. And this idea of chamatkara applies totally here, where instead of wrestling with your mind when you can't go back to sleep, you sit back almost like in the theater, kind of witness awareness, and you just watch the display. It's like watching 4th of July. And with a sense of wonderment, it's like, wow, look, look how wild my mind is. This is amazing. And you celebrate it, literally. You go, this is just unbelievable. Look how cool this is. And then the practice becomes staying with that because Usually what happens is you'll find yourself getting, you know, the mind's really sticky, right? So an image or thought or whatever, you know, usually the mind is just flying at, you know, who knows how many RPMs or what I playfully call TPMs, right? <laughs> it's not revolutions per minute, it's thoughts per minute, right? So, you know, you're, you're 200 TPMs, right? And so what happens is a thought arises and the mind is so sticky, it's Velcro, gloms onto that and then kafoom, you're off you're off, you're off. And so that's the practice, is to notice when you get hooked, shempa. Notice when you get hooked, release the hook, step back and witness. And then eventually the, the practice, the, the mind just deflates, literally the winds settle um, and eventually the mind will slow down to the point where you know the porous um, kind of discontinuous nature of the thought stream becomes available to you. And of course, when that mind starts to slow down, open up, 
you will then eventually fall through one of those gaps. That's what happens when we fall asleep. We fall through the otherwise continuous nature of this relentless stream of thoughts. And so literally what keeps us up is the winds. The winds come up, they blow us out of the heart center chakra, if you believe in that stuff, into the head chakra, and things are just really windy in there. And so what I playfully say now, if it's windy, go fly a kite. You know, go sailing. Don't wrestle with it, go fly a kite. Watch your mind as it goes all over the place and then just celebrate it. Um, and so there are other variations to that, things that you can just explore, but that's the foundational thing. It's a big deal. Chamatkara, just celebrate the display. And then like I often say these days, literally sometimes as, as a mantra, I will say, love your mind, love your mind love your mind. And many of you have heard me say this before, you know, thoughts are just the children of your mind, right? We're, they're just the children of your mind. And so sometimes the children throw tantrums, sometimes the children are pinging off the walls and, you know, too much sugar, whatever. So what? Be a good parent. You know, don't let them get carried away, so to speak. Don't indulge them. Don't repress them. That's the key, the middle way. Don't indulge, don't repress. Witness. Um, and then maybe that's enough on that. There are other things you can do. There's certain like, you know, prana purification. There's a, a kind of variations on that wind exercises and stuff that you can do that um, probably a little bit beyond our purview here. But that's the fundamental insomnia yoga is you turn it into a yoga. You just witness it, you watch it without getting hooked into it. And then just celebrate, really. Just celebrate the display of your mind and the extreme kind of velocity of that display. It's like, wow. I mean, I never realized my mind could, could, could travel at 300 TPMs, right? Pretty cool. Okay, something like that. I find it super helpful. Thanks. All right, next question. Um, when you sleep sitting up, is it okay if your head nods forward or do you have to keep your head up straight? No, you have to keep your head up straight. You, you can't, you, no, I'm just joking, of course. Actually, actually, maybe if Joe's listening, he, he'll remember this. I have heard, and I actually saw this, and I can't remember where, maybe it was in India, Tibet, or somewhere in a, a three-year re retreat facility. No kidding. I saw like a little, I'll answer the question, but this is um, in connection to sleeping, sitting up. I saw like a little cane, a kind of little staff that was custom built that had like a little uh, semi-lunar, like little dome. And what you would do, you know, I mean, when I, when I did my long retreat, I actually slept up, sitting up. It was part of the practice. It was, you got used to it pretty quick. Um, and in the tradition, you would actually have this little cane that you'd somehow put between your legs and it would actually help support your, your head. So I was thinking of kind of um, making those, patenting them and branding them for the West, but I, I probably would sell like one. So that ain't gonna happen. Yes, it totally, it's okay. You know, again, it's this maxim of not too tight, not too loose. Um, when I slept sitting up, and it was hysterical the way, the way I did it, I'm sure if Joe's listening, he probably did something like this. I, had, I was sleeping in a box. Everybody, you know, gets all intrigued. Like, you did what? You spent 16 hours a day in a box? Yeah, pretty much, because I'm a nutcase, right? Well, the box is a traditional, I came to call it Ego's Coffin. It was awesome. I got a picture for it, of it. I'll show it to you someday as a side and uh, two panels on the side that come up partially and then a panel in the back. I became actually very fond of Ego's Coffin. 
And so what I would do, the way I slept in it, and maybe this will help, is I actually tipped it back a little bit. And then I, I just stuffed the Jesus out of it with, with every conceivable pillow and foam mattress I could find. And so it was just hysterical because I was like lodged. I was like, I was like packaged in Amazon styrofoam. And so I, I was like just completely, completely packed in with all these little foam bags <laughs> so that I could sleep pretty much sitting up. Um, and then of course, by the end of the morning or by the end of the night, I would just be a, a puddle of mush at the bottom of my box, right? I just completely splatter all over the place. So the idea is don't worry if your head bobs forward. Um, sleeping sitting up, of course, is a total option. Um, you can do just as well sleeping on the right side. You can do, you know, probably almost as well just sleeping on your back. But there are reasons using inner yogic anatomy and physiology, the winds, the channels that are really sophisticated. It makes a tremendous sense for sleeping on the right side or in fact sleeping up. Um, so somewhat long-winded um, answer that if your head bobs around and whatever, that's totally fine. You might in whatever situation you have set up, maybe allow yourself to tip back a little bit forward, a little bit farther back like you're sitting in a plane seat when you tip that back. It's not that hard to sleep in a plane seat like that, especially when you got one of those neck cushions. I also had that. That's the other thing I had around my head. It was hysterical. So maybe that's enough on that one. Um, you want to, you know, there's some effort involved with these things. But, you know, this is a practice where I recommend in the maximum of not too tight, not too loose. My particular style is if you're going to err, err on the side of too loose. Because if you're too tight, first of all, you won't fall asleep. You're trying too hard. You know, you kind of wind yourself and tie yourself into knots. And, um, you know, it'll backfire on you. And so if you're going to err, err on the side of playfulness, um, you know, really enjoy what you're doing with these nocturnal practices, because otherwise you ain't going to do them, right? I mean, you're in a certain way, you're, you're violating ego sanctuary. I mean, ego goes into the darkness of the night. Darkness is an archetype for ignorance. This is where ego goes to recharge its samsaric batteries. And you're kind of violating those boundaries with these practices, which is one reason a lot of people draw the line with daytime meditation. You know, you can wake me up during the day, but do not disturb sign comes out at night. And so I generally recommend a more playful, open, childlike approach to these practices, because otherwise you just, you won't be a quit, you'll drop out. Um, it's too disruptive, it's too disturbing, and you'll just bag it. Um, so something like that. Here's a question from the chat. Uh, will, Andrew, where, will Andrew be doing another course like the 10-week Obstacles as Opportunities Bardo Studies, like he said he would consider? That would be wonderful. As in a repeat of that or as in a new one? I'm, I'm, I'm actually drafting a new follow-up for that. Um, you know, this course will be available for those of you who didn't take it. I, I have to say, I, and I, I teach a lot, this 10-week course Ah, it could be the best course I've ever taught. Um, I really put my heart into this program and I loved it. It was just, you know, I don't have my clinical gig anymore. I had the opportunity to dive into this stuff in a big way for 10 weeks and, and uh, I loved it. In fact, I think it's so rich that we're transcribing the talks and um, I think there's pretty easily a book here. So that course will become available if you want to take it on my site. Um, I will most certainly be drafting, in fact, I'm already doing it, a follow-up course to that course. Because for those of you who did take it, 
you, you maybe saw how rich it was and how much there still is left to say. So thank you for the opportunity to plug that stuff. Um, absolutely positively stay tuned. I will be offering a follow-up course, either five or 10 weeks, we'll see. And then the course that, that was offered, um, we're actually kind of working to prepare and, and, and uh, make it available for those of you who didn't take it. Um, I, I enjoyed the beans out of this class. It was really, really fun. So thanks for the opportunity to set up my lemonade stand. <laughs> uh, let's go to some of the raised hands. Okay. And uh, the first one will be Anne. Yes, hi, can you hear me? Hi, oh, Anne. Hi. My dear friend Anne, so nice to see you. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, so wonderful to see you. Yeah, I was in the Boulder uh, Bardo course that you just taught, and I've been going over it again and again because it is so incredibly rich. It's, it's, there's so much there. So, um, and I kind of want to follow up on that in my okay. question. Sure. What I'd like to ask you is um, if you could uh, talk a little bit about um, transcending the self yet including the self. Yeah. Or transcending duality yet including duality. Yeah. And I could say more, but if you can just take it from there, totally. that's fine. Yeah, this is a big deal topic. The, the, the actual phrase is an adaptation of something that Hegel, the great idealist, German idealist, came up with, supersede but include. Ken Wilber um, kind of really runs with it in a beautiful way. Um, he uses the nomenclature transcend but include. And the idea is a really important one um, for a number of reasons. One is the idea is a developmental one, a, a spectrum of, of evolution. And this has tremendous practical and theoretical power because on a practical level, um, on a spiritual path in so many ways, people think, well, I need to get rid of this thing called ego, right? Um, ego is the problem, I need to get rid of the ego. Well, that's a wrong view because there is no ego. Ego is just, uh, Almas puts it, um, it's just an arrested form of development. That's all it is. Pema says ego is just a funny way of looking at things. And so the invitation on the path is don't get rid of the ego. We need it on a, on a very real level. We couldn't operate in this world if we didn't have a provisional capacity to separate self from other. Even, even our so interesting, immunology, immunology works on this tenet. Your antibody system, if, if your immunology cannot separate self from other, this is acquired you know, uh, immune deficiency syndrome, you are going to die. So there has to be a provisional separation of self and other, even to get to this evolutionary point. And ego is in a certain sense, kind of that frozen archetype of the separation um, and then unfortunate reification of self and other. And so what, what we wanna do on the path then, as you know, Anne, is we want to understand that ego is in fact just that. It's just a funny way of looking at things. It's a, a developmental lens. And so then when we grow, we simply wanna grow beyond it. Transcend, that's the transcend part. But we still want to include it. In other words, we always have recourse to this funny way of looking at things. And it's really helpful for other people who are still stuck at this funny level level of looking at things, right? So we transcend and include, we have a, a more adult view, a more higher view, a better view, 
but we still can stoop down to a lower kind of childlike level to communicate with children, right? And so the transcendent include is there's several analogies I use. One is when you grow from five feet to five feet, six inches, you don't kill five feet. You transcend but include five feet as you grow to five feet six. When you grow from age 18 to age 19, you don't kill age 18. You transcend but include age 18. And so therefore, you always have access you know, to, to the ego. You can, the ego then becomes a friend. Ego becomes an ally. You can always step down the developmental ladder, stoop down to communicate with other people that still see the word world through an egoic lens. And, and that, and I think, is a pretty good working definition of upaya or skillful means. It's not meeting people where you're at. You know, it's like a, an adult trying to talk to a child using adult language. You're not going to communicate. Real skillful means is meeting people where they're at. And, and so, you know, transcendent include is your view is more grown up. It's more adult. It's more awake. But sometimes people, again, mixing metaphors, they're either so asleep, so childlike or whatever, you're not going to reach them if you're talking from that high altitude. You have to step down. And so that's, that's the way uh, growth works, using processes of, of what integral developmental theories call translation and transformation. You know, you, you work, this is slightly outside the scope, but you work and work and work at a certain level of development, and this is where the great contribution of the West level stages, structures of development, so important to understand. At a certain point, you, real, you kind of exhaust that level, right? And that comes out as like, hey man, there's gotta be more to it than this, that these are kind of the midlife crisis situations, the contestations of, of current established ways of view, viewing things. That's when translation, the translation, like moving up a floor, again, another analogy, moving up a floor in, in the uh, building, you translate, you spend your entire life translating, moving, doing all the stuff. And at a certain point you go, this is it, there's gotta be more. And so then you end a, you're in a crisis. Then you enter a bar hill. And then you have to kind of die to that level. And then that's where the transformation comes in before you move to the next floor. And then of course you start the whole thing all over again, right? <laughs> then you stabilize in that, you translate that, you do your thing. And then eventually you realize, hey, wait a second, I'm still not happy. There's still something missing. And then the whole thing just starts again. And that's really the process of growth. That's how growth takes place. You realize the limitations of the paradigm, the limitations of a particular lens or storyline or structural narrative. You realize, hey, I'm still not happy. There's something missing. Things all come in disarray, you know, in, in actually chaos theory, dissipative structures. The work of uh, Ilya Prigogine is about these sorts of things. You know, before you move to the next level, the previous level Hulk kind of has to fall apart. So slightly long-winded answer to a terrific question. Um, does, that, does that land with you? Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. And I especially like the idea of the developmental level because you know sometimes I find what I'm trying to do in my practice is recognize awareness all the time. Mm -hmm. But then there's times when I really need to even go back to that kind of, I, I take refuge. You know, I generate bodhicitta, you know, that I need that kind of sense of duality almost. Yes. You know what I mean? In my practice, yes. I can't motivate myself enough without it. It's too abstract. So it's too absolute. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I see that. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, you really so much of your teaching so helpful. Oh, you're so, you're so sweet. And what you said what you said, Anne, just there is really interesting because this is what continues to grease the skids 
throughout every level of, of transformation is in fact that constant flashing of, of awareness. So you continue that that's what greases the skids all the way until that absolute is completely stabilized, right? So that's what, what you're doing is perfect. That's what we take ultimate refuge in. That's actually fundamentally what drops the crowbars into these relative levels. That's what starts to dislodge our exclusive identification with these lower levels is just that practice. Um, and just like you say, you know, uh, until we've completely differentiated from all these relative levels and taken absolute refuge in, in the absolute, this is just the game that we play. And we come back to what we're familiar with, we work with that, we work in the dualistic framework, i.e. what you know, relative truth. We work through the mechanisms of relative truth. Because otherwise, and some teachers have tried this, and I, I, I could name a dozen names, but I won't. People, unfortunately, many Westerners, Western masters, um, come in with these kind of absolute level teachings, you know, the kind of Nike approach, just do it. Well, you know, get back to me in a decade and let me know how that works. Um, and usually it doesn't work because even though they're speaking an absolute ultimate truth, it's 100% right because of the power of habit, karma, the blind spots, all these developmental um, uh, uh, kind of blindnesses. We, in my opinion, have to come in with the, all these relative skillful means. And so that's a dance we play, right? We have the absolute, we work with that as the view, and then we're doing kind of the grunt work at the relative level um, until we can fully actualize and eventually realize the inseparability of both. But that's a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. I'd like to just say one more thing and that, um, that I would love to encourage you to talk about awareness in your follow-up course or your December class in terms of seeing everything as awareness. Yeah, that's that particular the teaching is just so powerful. And honestly, I've never had a teacher come right out and say that before. So I'm just so- Well, you're so kind. I'll get this from you, you know, that's in terms what, of starting this with my view. That's actually what the non-dual course that I'm, that I'm drafting, um, that's what that course is all about. Because right. as you well know, I mean, if there is one irreducible curative agent for psychological and spiritual growth, that's it, awareness. Right. So for sure, I mean, that sublimates everything, right? I mean, that's the, that's, that's the player. So you, you're on it, man. And so, yeah, we will continue to explore that. Thanks, Anne. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, and David will be up next. Okay. Hey, Andrew. David, long time no see. It's true. Not that long. Yeah, not that long. Good to see you, my friend. Okay, so um, so I'm I'm um, I grow a lot of vegetables in my yard, and uh, this has become a squirrel attractor. Okay, so um, and the squirrels are funny. They'll they'll like take a bite and then toss, right? Bite and toss, you know? So um, what I've started doing is um, live trapping the squirrels, oh, okay. taking them miles away oh. and releasing them. Oh. I, I call it the squirrel relocation program, <laughs> okay? So I'm, I, I'm realizing that COVID is well first of all let's think about the bardo of death and becoming as a relocation program oh very nice very nice okay oh, i like and, that 
And um, so I'm thinking as um, of COVID reframing it as the boomer relocation program. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'd like you to riff on that. On what part of it? Like, like what part? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, I, I guess Bardo as, as a relocation program. I mean. Okay, well, if I'm understanding it, for sure. Um, for sure. Uh, in, in, in relation to the boomer thing too, just parenthetically, I might throw into the mix. Uh, Ken Wilber wrote a very interesting, it's his only novel, kind of experimental novel that he published maybe 15 years ago that's worth a look. It's called Boomeritis. It's like the infection and the inflammation of the whole boomer thing. It's, it's, it's worth a look. Um, but in terms of Bardo's relocation, let me just make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, David. It's a, it's a relocation um, or a transplantation of narrative. That's one way to look at it and, and kind of identity structure, right? Um, so there's so many different ways this metaphor can be used, if I'm understanding what you're saying that on, on a very real level, especially when you're talking about death bardos, because again, there are six bardos, three life bardos and three death bardos. But if you're talking about the death bardos and bardo is kind of a metaphor for um, what you're talking about relocation, you know, I would put what comes to mind is, is running with the idea of relocating or transplanting your um, locus of identity, um, you know, expanding it fundamentally to the point where it becomes not a, a, a transplantation of identity itself, but a transcendence of identity altogether, where you fundamentally work with becoming identity less. In other words, and here, here's an interesting way to look at it with the squirrel thing, is, you know, homeless. How, how, how comfortable are you being homeless? Um, and this is very interesting because, you know, the archetypal home, home is an archetype, home is a principle, homesickness is a principle. And so we have our literal homes as we know that, but then we have a cascade um, of other more subtle dimensions of, of home principle. One of course is our body, that's a more intimate home. And then even more foundational to that is mind and dimensions of mind. And so when we die, fundamentally we become homeless, right? And so when you take your squirrels and you send them all the way across town, you know, you've evicted them, right? So we can run with this, here's the narrative, right? So now you get me excited. So you've evicted them from their homes. And so when you die, <laughs> you're going to be evicted forcefully by nature from all levels of home. And that homelessness is what makes the Bardos so disconcerting. Um, and it, and you know, so fundamentally one, what we want to do, and Bernie, Bernie Glassman, by the way, the Zen practitioner, as you may know, David, actually did these sorts of things. He did street meditations. You know, he was a radical Zen, I love this guy, activist, beautiful human being. I mean, he practiced, he, he did retreats in Auschwitz and Dachau, and he, he did Zen street retreats where he literally worked with this stuff on a very gritty level. Um, and so just to come back to your more playful squirrel thing, yeah, think of it as homelessness, right? So when you die, you're going to be evicted. Um, and how are you going to handle being homeless like this? I mean, a more contemporary example is Minga Rinpoche's exquisite book, In Love with the World. That whole beautiful book, if you haven't read it, you have to read it, is all about how he, you know, threw himself out of his palatial estate, just like the Buddha, 
literally became homeless on the streets of India and used that really gritty physical manifestation of homelessness to really explore the homeless dimensions of his own mind and being. And so maybe that's as far as I can take that metaphor, but it's a good one. Um, and honestly, I, I love this kind of stuff because fundamentally, everything can be seen that way, a symbolic guru, symbolic teacher. Everything can be brought to bear on the path. And so when you do something like that and your mind goes in that direction, I think that's pretty cool. It's just showing you know, that, yeah, you're thinking about, hey, this is one way to look at Bardo tennis or whatever. So anyway, my friend, that's where my mind goes with this one. Okay? Thank you. Yeah, always nice to see you. Take care of yourself. Make sure you pay your rent or you're gonna get thrown out of your house. <laughs> That's what the Buddha's trying to do. The Buddha's gonna come in and evict you, right? From all your comfort plans. Eventually he's gonna evict you from your body. Eventually he's gonna evict you from every dimension of mind until you become completely, utterly homeless. And you can say, I'm okay with this. I'm good with this. <laughs> okay, Buddhism is eviction. I like that. All right. <clears throat> um, next with the audio will be Myra. Oh, these are all my friends. It's like I'm having a love fest <laughs> today. This is awesome. Hey, how are you? Good. Oh, she's back in her car driving her Porsche. Yes, I'm on my way to the dentist. <laughs> but anyway, I just was, I needed to laugh because Anne asked my question. So you answer, I have a new game. I just think about it and things come to me. That's awesome. So, but I was also curious about, um, because in a way you cannot speed up the path. I have heard that the only way to really kind of speed up the path is to get into bodhicitta and, and merit, That's right. dedicate the merit. Um, but in a way, we all evolve at our own pace and hear what we're ready to hear. Although we are all hearing to you, there's 130 versions of what you're saying. Um, so I have also heard in a way, uh, the, the holiness talking about secular Buddhism and how there's some reaction for people that do not really like, uh, Bialan Wallace, which I love has reacted sometimes a little bit about secular Buddhism, but I see it not that the rituals and the scriptures are important, but recognize what they are in the context of what they're trying to do. And in a way is to take a little bit, the veil away slowly, but we all are going to evolve or be unveiled in a different way. So that, that, that strange balance is the one that we struggle because we like the recipes so much. Yeah. We like the mantras so much. We like the recitation so much. And um, we forget that it's just creating that openness is what is hopeful to be. So it reveals itself, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, a couple of things. You know, first of all, it's very interesting. Um, wh what you said from a Buddhist perspective is true. That, um, so a couple of things you pinged on that let me just say one or two things on. And Kempo Rinpoche, my teacher, and many others have said exactly what you're saying is that you really can't accelerate your spiritual path. Karma has to work its own way. Um, um, however, Kempor Mache and others have said, however, there is one exception. And uh, uh, this is, of course, walking the path for the benefit of others. And this is so important, Myra, as you know, that in, in the Vajrayana spiritual technologies, Tantra practice, Tantra does not work without Bodhicitta. 
and, and so this is, I think this is fantastic that you, you fundamentally, you know, cannot attain full enlightenment without others on every level. And so not only does it accelerate it, but in the level of the Vajrayana, it's indispensable. If you don't do these practices without the motivation, with the motivation of bodhicitta for the benefit of others, these practices don't work. There's no juice there. And I have to tell you, I've seen this a lot. I mean, you know, a lot of people do these amazing practices, amazing retreats and whatnot. And I'm telling you, they're just, they just become more neurotic schmucks. I, you know, they're, it's like, it's not working. Well, is it the practice that's off or is it the practitioner that's off? Uh, my charter is the practitioner may be a little bit off. Let me throw this into the mix though. I have to share this with you. So in my interview with Chris Wallace yesterday, we talked a little bit about this and he said something that, that kind of blew my socks off because we're talking exactly about this sort of thing. And he said, you know, Andrew, he said, this is one of the things that separates Buddhism from Nandul Shaiva Tantra. He said in Nandul Shaiva Tantra, in fact, the initiation into, um, and Kesmer Shaivism is a slight kind of um, misnomer, a malapropism. It, it, it's, it, it's not the proper term. He actually corrected me and said it really should just be Nandul Shaiva Tantra. Um, but what he said was entry into that tradition takes place with, with a ritual, a three-day kind of abhisheka, you know that term, whereby in that Hindu tantric approach, your karma, in fact, can be purified. <laughs> I, my jaw just hit the floor, and I, and I didn't press him on it because um, I wanted to go in different directions with the conversation. But, you know, had I, in fact, if I have another chance to talk to Chris, I do want to press him on it because this is so antithetical to my understanding of karma. Um, and even I've heard His Holiness Karmapa, many, many teachers say that, you know, I can't purify your karma. Nobody can purify your karma. And, and so when Chris says that in that tradition, that's one thing that can be done with a, an Abhishek like that, I was floored. I mean, I just didn't know that. So that's one thing just to throw into the mix. It's like, wow. Second thing, the whole, the, the whole secular Buddhist thing. Um, I have to say, I'm a little bit in, in alignment with Alan Wallace around these sorts of things. Um, by the way, he opened up, a new, he's opening up a new center. I just was in communication. Oh, yes, yes. In Crestone. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I, he stopped Tuscany, yes. Yeah, it was too much, uh, too many logistics getting in Tuscany. So uh -huh. setting up, a, he bought this Carmelite center in, in, in uh, Crestone. I know exactly where it is. He bought the whole damn place. And is setting up his little con contemplative thing down there. I mean, that's like so cool. Um, so sidebar. But, you know, secular Buddhism is, is a really charged topic. Um, it's obviously deeply connected. Almost the founder, you could say, is Stephen Batchelor. I have tremendous respect for Stephen as, as a human being and a scholar. But I have to say, and I've done interviews and stuff with the Secular Buddhist podcast. I love these people. But I have to say I'm a little bit in line with, with Ad, uh, Alan's somewhat more conservative approach where there is a slight Eurocentrism going on here with the, the idea that you can somehow, you know, salad bar this approach just to make it more palatable to the West, you know, getting rid of tenets of reincarnation, getting rid of tenets of karma, which were foundational to the Buddhist teaching just to make it more digestible for the Western lens. And so this is a really massive topic. Um, on one level, get rid, get rid of that stuff on one level does open it up more because then you're getting rid of all the kind of belief stuff. Well, it's not a belief. It's, it's actually a description of reality just because you haven't experienced it and, and you know, doesn't fit into a worldview doesn't mean you, it, it isn't true. And so what Alan says that I agree with is there's, a, there's almost, almost 
I can't remember if he used this word, but he might have. I, I definitely know he used Eurocentricity, but he might even go white supremacist. There's almost a white supremacy that oh, <laughs> yes. we know better than the slanty-eyed. We know better than the dark-skinned Asians. We don't need this reincarnation stuff. We don't need this karma stuff. And so this is, you know, I, I'm probably throwing a, a depth charge um, when I say these sorts of things, but I tend to agree with Alan that, you know, who gives us the right is, is you know, privileged white intellectual supremacists to come around and just dismiss these kind of ancient traditional doctrines. I, I have a, tr a bit of trouble with that, um, but that's just my bias. That's my disposition. So anyway. Yeah. Well, it would be for another conversation because, but it, the, what confused me was to, to, to read the Hellenists that saying it. So I thought that maybe he's using it in the same way that he uses the neuroscience as another instrument of how to reach more people and still teach the teachers. Yeah, that's, isn't that, that's so, a, um, but, exactly. A huge topic, Myra. A very interesting one. You know, is it in fact his yeah. only impressions and insight to do that as a way to reach more people? I, who knows? But it's a very... Um, perky yeah. topic, and uh, people have gotten to, in some very sparky conversations around this one. So, anyway, thanks for bringing it yeah. up. Nice to Thank see you. you. Bye. Thank you. Okay, nice to see you again. Bye bye. All right. Uh, next up will be Erica K. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Hi, hi, Andrew. Um, thank you for this um, this um, session. Um, I heard you. I attended the uh, Menla the Bardo retreat with um, Dr. Thurman. And, hey, we, um, we scheduled the next one. We just put it up today. Yes, uh, wonderful. Yeah, so that's coming up. I think in September, October, another two weekend deal. So another chance to put up my lemonade stand. So anyway, <laughs> I, I I really enjoyed it, and I mean there was so so much meat and potatoes there. I'm just un, starting to unpack it. <clears throat> so basically, the thing that kind of really um, turned me on is this uh, these liminal states. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of, you know, I'm I'm very much in the Special Olympics program for, uh, you know, sleep yoga. Uh, I can, I can heart, I can barely do, you know, my, uh, my daily practice. Uh, I just, I always default to, to kindness. Uh, Perfect. That's a good default. When, when in doubt. Um, so, um, so essentially, um, maybe last year, I just had this intuitive sense that the shit was really going to hit the fan. Well, you're right. And and I um, and I I mobilized myself. I sold my apartment of 34 wow. years. Wow. I got out of New York City. Closed. Uh, I've closed down my business, my small business, in wow. anticipation. Uh, you know, it's a time of life where uh, I knew the winds of change were very much there. So I think some of my dreams uh, are very reflective um, of that. Um, uh, I love this business of, of, you know, really befriending, you know, both your waking and, and dream states. So essentially I'm having some terrible dreams recently mm -hmm. and I'm paying attention to them. And one just sort of really kind of woke me up. Uh, my husband was going in for an operation. I was trying to get the doctor to, uh, to tell me what the prognosis was, you know, you know, how long does he have left doc? And he, he says, he, barely five years, you know, like less than five years. 
and and I wake up upset. I'm I'm not really having a lucid dream, but I'm very much in touch with the uh, emotional um, uh, energy mm -hmm. in the dream, yeah. and like I don't want to toss out um, the problematic. Uh, right. Parts of myself in waking life, nor do I want to toss it out. So I wake up in this sort of liminal state. I'm in a place where I'm unfamiliar. Talk about like I'm in a different home. I mean, so um, uh, um, I guess what it is is how does one separate, you know, sort of the the wheat from the chaff and, you know, in sort of waking up, I try not to wake up completely. You know, I sort of let myself a little bit be in that sort of where am I, that liminal between, you know, area. And it takes me a little while. The dream just doesn't disappear. Sure. The, the emotional energy remains. Right. So. so say more a little bit, Erica, about what you mean by separate wheat from chaff. What's the wheat and what's the chaff here? Because I'm, I'm hearing several things that could you know, do, do you, it's interesting, like self and other, like, do you, do you, you know, clearly I'm, I'm getting some kind of a message. My dream yeah. is telling me something, you know, like they, some, you know, sometimes people joke about like the dreams where you're literally full of shit. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, is so the, question, the question, Erica, then how do you separate um, authentic dreams that could be actually, in fact, be delivering a message from just neurological noise? Is that the question? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Something like that. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good one um and well, not just neurological noise but but you know um unresolved you know life issues and psychological you know uh conundrums that you are trying to work through right well you can be pretty much assured don't you think that um we're always going to be working through stuff of course oh, like always and yes. so the question becomes like how much of this is going to be manifest evident and then available for you to work with with within this type of space and, and this is this is not such a easy question to answer categorically because we're all so different right so i i can't i can't say with a, a complete authority that this is utterly applicable to what you're saying but here's some general guidelines um one is that yes indeed you know there are many iterations many manifestations of what we're working through um, both in current experience and also somewhat prodromal, you know, dreams of premonition. This is where it gets even more complicated because, um, and maybe you can ping a little bit more of this back my direction, because sometimes we can very easily, or I should say readily, have dreams that, that are authentic premonitions of things to come. There's a whole classification of dreams in that arena. And so just that alone starts to make it a little bit more interesting slash complicated in terms of how to work with it. But let's just say, for the sake of um, time, that we're looking at how to work with these types of states as they're manifesting in like something that's happening actively, like during the day, and what's taking place when you're actually dreaming, and how you can work with it. You know, one is pay attention, in fact, to, to the types of dreams that, that are delivering this seeming import. In other words, um, the ones that when you wake up and before second thought comes in, um, Allen Ginsberg and Trungpa Rinpoche often talk about first thought, best thought. Mm -hmm. This relates quite a bit to, to the, the way we should relate to some dreams. Um, when you first wake up in the morning and there's, you will notice there's like a pre-discursive, pre-intellectual impact. 
um, a, a tone, a tenor, a feeling that comes from your body that then almost instantly, especially the more conscious you get or awake you get, then you proliferate on it, you riff on it. And then at that point, it's very easy to get confused because you know, you, you'll start to spin it in all the ways that ego usually does to make it feel better for you. So one of the ways is, is to centrifuge out the less meaningful dreams from the meaningful ones, the weed from the shaft is, is the ones that deliver that impact, pre-discursive, pre-conceptual, where you just wake up and you go, oh, that was interesting. And then if you're in a liminal stage, you can actually re-hit the replay button. In other words, stay in that hypnopopic, that's hypnopopic space, stay in that space and try to re-enter the dream. Um, there, you can do that in terms of maybe even working with lucidity, but even if you don't, just kind of go back in and replay the dream. Um, that will, first of all, help you remember it. You'll kind of burn it into the hard drive a little bit further. Then you can wake up, you can write it down. Um, and then you can actually start to do some classic dream interpretation if this is in fact what you're asking. And you know, if you want to go there, I'll pause and see if in fact this is where you want to go with it. There are ways to, to work with that, but I want to pause and just make sure I'm even on the right track for you because I'm hearing several different things here. Um, you, you, you really are. And of course, this is not the forum to get into all kinds of, of history. And, and I would really appreciate um, a one-on-one -on -one if you do that sort of thing. I do that sort of thing. Yeah, just go to my site. There's a place for personal sessions. You can look at that, Eric. I'm happy to talk to you and also you know, refer you to so-called professionals who work with dreams more professionally than I do. But I do have a little bit of experience with this. And so if you want to explore it, we can do it maybe. Well, particularly with your background in sleep medicine, because I have some issues there. Okay. So, um, so I don't want to take up everyone else's time, but I wanted to maybe get to know you a little more and just really thank you and okay. sort of say where I'm at. But, but these, these are helpful things. And I've, I've, been, I've been trying to do that. You know, sometimes when you wake up, the, the, the feeling is so disturbing, you don't want to go back. That's right. Um, That's right. And, Exactly. We don't want to go back. But, you know, again, this is, again, this is such a rich arena, isn't it? Because the things, what, what actually creates a large part of the unconscious mind altogether, not always, because the unconscious mind has different, there's what's called the emergent unconscious, there's a repressed unconscious. It's very interesting to talk about the dimensions of unconscious mind altogether. But one very big aspect of the unconscious mind is the repressed unconscious. Um, which is where the unconscious mind literally becomes the refuse heap of our refused experience. And I talk about this a lot. It, it, I think it's very powerful that, you know, out of sight is not out of mind. Out of sight is usually into the unconscious mind. And so what we refuse in the daytime experience, and we do this all the time. Um, I mean, this is a massive part of the whole um, samsaric agenda is the way we say no to our life experience, especially when it gets hard. Well, what you refuse in conscious life becomes the refuse heap, I love the double entendre, mm -hmm. becomes the refused heap of your unconscious mind. And guess where you're going when you're sleeping, right? You're going into this intermediate bed that's filled with spiders and snakes, all the stuff that you've just rejected. It's there. And so having the proper view here, Erica, is super important because you, know, you, you may be, thinking that you're on the Special Olympics with this stuff, but things are already cooking for you. And these unconscious processes are bringing, um, making themselves available to the light of consciousness. And they have to, otherwise they will fester um, as the sublimated, these, these refused kind of psychic cysts and basically dictate 
the entirety of our so-called conscious lives. And so, you know, again, paraphrasing the master one-liner, Trung Rinpoche, meditation isn't a sedative, it's a laxative. And so when you're doing with, <laughs> when you do these practices, you're feeling the results of the laxative. That shit's coming up. It has to. That's why the spiritual path is also a warrior path. And so it, again, it takes a little bit of guts um, just to be on the path altogether to face all these elements that we have thrown into the unconscious mind. They have to come up. And if you have the view, a little bit like in the spirit of the insomnia thing, in Pema Children, again, she's made a career out of this, right? Go to the places that scare you when things fall apart. The really deep divers um, will really get into this stuff because this is where the growth takes place. And so when this stuff is coming up, you know, chaos, whatever, again, should be regarded as extremely good news. Ah, it sounds great on paper. Doesn't feel so good in life. So this is a massively important topic and maybe I'll let it go for now, but um, you're accessing dimensions of your mind that really have to come up because um, otherwise you're just going to fester and control everything you do. And, and so it's not easy. Um, and you can work with this in so many different ways, dream work, therapy, meditation, so many different skillful means to help you, you know, um, basically take ownership of these boomerangs that you've thrown away, right? They're going to come back. They're going to hit you on the back of the head. <laughs> and so anyway, lots to say there, but maybe I'll let that go for now. Okay. Okay. Thanks so much. Yeah. Nice to hear from you. Bye. Thank you. Um, I do want to apologize because we were Zoom bomb, so I had to disable the chat. Again. God, yeah. wow. So we don't have the chat working. But um, we still have some hands raised, and uh, next will be Ariella. Okay. Yep, you have the audio. Where is Andrew? Hi. Where is Andrew? I'm here. Oh, hi, Andrew. Hi again. <laughs> Where are you? You look like you're hanging out over some uh, mountain ridge or something. I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven. Good for you. I'm in heaven. I'm in, uh, in Northern California in Sebastopol. But until a week ago, I was in Israel. Nice. And, and <laughs> yeah. So while I was there, it kind of ties, ties to something that you said during the 10-week the course. You touched upon it. You didn't expound on it, but I really resonated with it. And it, it, what I want to talk about with you a little bit is the, the word love. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you mentioned, uh, of course, Minja Rinpoche's book, who dared to use the word love, love with the world. And, you know, with our Buddhist language, non-duality language, that word often is missing. And... Oh. My own teacher talks about essence love, which I'm not exactly sure where to place it. Um, but what I, the experience that I have more recently is because my mother is, is um, old and she's one of those, you know, at the highest risk for COVID. Mm. And because it seems, it feels like the noose is getting tighter and tighter around the at least the possibility that she's going to get it. It's, yeah. it's very likely. Um, every time I think of it or every time I hear of it, any piece of news that it's getting closer, I get very, very anxious. And um, so while I was there, 
and having to daily, sometimes several times a day, really pay attention to my own uh, anxiety around it. Even talking about it right now makes me anxious because yeah. I just heard that there is a person in that small community that uh, is, is confirmed uh, COVID. Um, you know, so, so Rinpoche does handshaking, which I'm actually not completely sure if it's this similar to reverse meditation or not. It kind of feels energetically that it may have a lot of similarity. But, but what I realized is since, I, since it's my mind that projects all the phenomena and all the thoughts, um, it's not, my anxiety is not, is not about her. It's about my own anxiety of my own death. Yeah. It's my own physical fear of my own physical anxiety. And then somehow I realized that if my deepest longing is to wake up, then these opportunities are really like a, a love messages to myself so that I can actually look and, and look at who it is that is experiencing those. So I could wake up every, mo every time I, I feel that way. And so instead of meeting those, those experiences uh, with a lot of resistance or fear, I, I felt like, okay, this is, this is a gift. This is my gift to myself to wake yep. up. This is my gift to myself to wake up. And in, in, you, in, in framing it as love, which is a word that for me at least has a lot of uh, potential uh, and energy, um, it softened rather than kind of trying to come with a sword or with um, and maybe a little more aggression towards my own uh, challenges, bring softness to it. And it seems that once I made that shift, there was not a problem anymore in meeting those. I didn't see them as ad adversarial to me or, you know, I, it, it became, they became my friends. There you go. Yeah. So, so the love, you know, can you, you know, how can we incorporate more love into our Buddhist language so that we can start entertaining the possibility that what we're doing here, or what we're aspiring to. Yeah. Comes yeah. from this arena, comes from this world right. of love. Yeah, fundamentally. So a couple of things. Yeah. Thank you, first of all, for sharing all that. Um, I mean, you said some really beautiful things here. And one of the things that, that I really just want to put an exclamation mark is that, yes, indeed, this is the idea of, of, of uh, sacred outlook where you realize that fundamentally with a proper lens, everything becomes a teacher, everything becomes a teaching, everything becomes an opportunity. And so sometimes I, I playfully use this notion that everybody on this planet is a Buddha, but you. <laughs> So everybody is, everybody is, is, is role-playing to wake you up. And that means yes. that jerk that cut you off is Padmasambhava yes. teaching you about patience. That, that whatever that did this to irritate you is, you know, uh, Tara teaching you about whatever. And, and so this kind of, of pure perception, sacred outlook is, is a, a powerful way to in fact, in the spirit of the Tantra, because this is the Tantric spirit, there are no weeds in the garden of Tantra. And so therefore you can use everything. It's also why Tantra is called the quick path because everything becomes the path. There's nothing that's rejected. Therefore nothing's refused. That ties in beautifully to, the, to Erica's thing. There's, there, there's no refuse in Tantra. Everything is embraced. So that's one thing. 
the second thing is I, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, it's why in that program I, I talked about, you know, we're going to talk about love in a very funny way. You know, we're going to talk about love in, in a really kind of bizarre way using the term emptiness. You know, the affective expression of emptiness is love. And so it's, it, love is the nature of reality. And that's why when Mingyur Rinpoche so bravely wrote his book, you know, when he fell um, into reality through his experience, he fell into love. And so there's so much to say here. But uh, first of all, I mean, I just completely, utterly agree with you how we can make it more common is just like what we're doing now is we just have the guts to talk about it more frequently. Um, yes, we use bodhicitta. Yes, we use karuna, maitri, all these kind of clinical <laughs> words. But, you know, in, in, as, as you know, love is a kind of four letter word in the Buddhist community. You know, it's almost like whatever. So interesting, by the way, it spells, if you spell it backwards, it spells the better part of evolve. Isn't that interesting? Um, but the idea is the nature of reality is in fact made of love. It's unnatural, it's unnatural not to be in a state of love. And there's, there's, you know, all the reasons for not being in love, of course, the same reasons we fear falling in love conventionally is because that, that denotes a quality of openness and vulnerability. And so one of the reasons we're afraid of love is because we're afraid of being hurt. We're afraid of being so open, so vulnerable. Um, but that leads into a really I mean, again, this, this is such a big topic. I'm not sure where you want me to run with it. I can just simply say I agree with everything that you're saying. I love the way Tsukhin Rinpoche uses it, essence love. Um, you know, his brother, Mingyur Rinpoche, talking about it in his book. And I think like with you, that we need to be a little bit more courageous, outrageous, which is why I'm speaking more overtly about it. As a way to maybe, you know, again, culturally translate some of these more abstract teachings on emptiness and the like into really powerful, effective Western terms. So I'm not sure where else you want me to go with this, but that's what comes to mind. Uh, thank you. And, and can you just, thank you. Um, can you say something about handshake versus reverse meditation? Well, the handshake meditation, yeah. Again, I can't explain the whole thing for those of you who don't know it. It's a really beautiful practice of Tsugar Rinpoche, where it's, it's completely in line with the reverse meditations, where you're, you're willing to open you know, it's, it's a gesture of opening your heart, but you start by opening your hands, right? It's the same thing. You're, you're just welcoming whatever comes. Um, and so it's, it's his way of working with exactly the type of thing we're talking about here is just being willing to welcome, to handshake virtually anything that comes along the way and to make it workable, um, to bring it onto your path. So short of actually going into the, to medit the practice to help others stay with us on this, Maybe that's as far as I can go with that. But I think you're definitely on the right wavelength there as well, that you know, the reverse practices, working with unwanted circumstance by hand, you know, doing the handshake approach, as he puts it, is absolutely in line with um, those other meditations. Okay? Thank you. Yeah, welcome back from Israel. Nice to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you too. Thank you. You bet. Okay, we got time for a couple more. Great. And I also want to mention that the Zoom bombers have left and the chat's back open. All right, next up will be Kostin. Hi, Dan. Can you hear me all right? Hi. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Where are you, where are you, where are you coming in from? I'm um, based in England. Oh, okay. 
Nice. Wonderful. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, it's been great hearing all, um, all the dialogues. Cool. Um, I suppose um, it's more like um, a, a question related to Yoga Nidra. Yoga Nidra, okay. Um, so a few years ago, I kind of did an, a very weak attempt to relate um, Yoga Nidra practice with lucid dreaming. Okay. And I got into uh, a bit more um, kind of reading around um, Kashmiri Shivaism um, and the state of mind. Uh, there, there is an author, which I mentioned on, on the chat, who um, kind of dealt with uh, the state of mind and Yoganidra from a Kashmiri uh, point of view. Um, and who is that? Because I didn't read the chat. Who is that? Um, uh, so, uh, Suami Lakshmanju. I don't know if I pronounce it correctly. Okay. Um, I, I can send you the book um, reference if, if you need. Yeah, um, I've always it. Okay. Our, our, my attempt was pretty weak. I mean, we're talking about three pages there, a very short study. Um, would you be able to um, expand a bit more, perhaps, uh, if there is a relationship between yoga nidra practice and, and lucid dreaming practice? Yeah, for is sure. That, um, for sure. Well, and, and yeah. perhaps go beyond that, perhaps into a, a bit of uh, more like uh, Kashmiri Shivaism type practice. Is there more in there than there we actually uh, know usually or find out usually? Yeah, so a couple, number of questions there. Uh, there isn't a ton um, that's put, translated yet, but in the Tantraloka chapter 12, which is, um, I'm not sure what is available in, in translation, that deals with dream yoga. So it is part of that tradition. Yoga Nidra is defined differently by different entities. Um, and so, you know, for instance, you know, you have the whole I rest Yoga Nidra of Richard Miller that I greatly appreciate it. He's a friend very savvy thinker along these lines, also well-informed with Kashmir Shaivism. That's a kind of more, and again, I, I, just the broadest brush strokes, you know, kind of relaxation response things, very, very powerful kind of lucid sleep onset practices. But my guess, and I'm not familiar with who you're referring to, but classic Nidra, yoga Nidra, Nidra is sleep, classic sleep yoga is deeper than that. That's would be, um, correlative to what in the Buddhist tradition is referred to as Ursul yoga or, or literally luminosity yoga. And I talk about this, my friend, um, in the latter stages of, of my dream yoga book, uh, Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. I, I have one chapter there on luminosity practice, um, another reference and again, there's very little out there on this. Um, another reference would be the latter section of Tenzin Wangyo, um, his book, The Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. He has quite a fine rendering of sleep yoga from the Bun tradition. And then there's also um, Namkai Nobu Rinpoche and Alan Katz wrote this book, uh, Dream Yoga and the Practice of Natural Light. They talk a little bit about sleep yoga there. So when, when you're talking about yoga nidra in the context that you're referring to, uh, I'm just making some guesses because if, if it is in fact coming from Shaiva Tantra, it's probably dealing with Churya, right? Is that, is that a yes. term that's used? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So when you're talking about the fourth, Turiya, then in fact, you're working with something that's highly resonant with 
luminosity yoga. Um, and oh my goodness, again, it's like these other incredibly rich questions. It's just a matter of how much I can share with you. You know, the most important thing is it's a monumental part of the nocturnal meditation. In fact, it's such a big part that dream yoga is actually a subset of sleep yoga. And yoga nidra is actually the main practice. Um, because if you contain lucidity in the deep dreamless state, you automatically, again, the idea of transcend but include, like we were talking about earlier, that transcends but includes dream yoga. Um, so it's, it's the foundational practice, which is also why it's a little bit more difficult, actually a lot more difficult. Um, and so there's so much to say. One thing you can do that, that I riff on in my book is you can use dream yoga as a kind of halfway house to sleep yoga. In fact, dream yoga is considered partial lucidity. Sleep yoga is considered full lucidity, um, you know, turiya, and so, or clear light mind in, in the Buddhist tradition. And so you can actually use dream yoga um, as a kind, literally as a kind of halfway house to the practice of sleep yoga. So maybe direct me war in terms of where you want to go with it, because when these questions are just so big, there's so many yeah, different I, alleys I, that actually, I can run down. Is that kind I, of helpful? I'm mindful that, um... Uh, more knowledge comes with more practice. So the, the deeper I go into practice, the more I will. Um, here's, one thing I, here's one thing I might recommend, Kostan. Here's one thing I might recommend is one of the most powerful ways to gain access to real yoga nidra is to work with formless meditations during the day. What is found now is found then. And the people, the reason people don't recognize deep dreamless sleep is because uh, dreamless is formless. Um, formless is the antithesis of ego, and so therefore, as, as Trungpa Che again once said so beautifully, you know, ego can't attend its own funeral. And so, <laughs> this is why we don't recognize the, the, the Turiya, because of ego being exclusive identification with form. So, what one way to really work with this, and this is the way I work with it in my retreats, is you really stabilize this practice by doing the formless meditation during the day. That's working with the, the daytime analog of yoga nidra. And then with proficiency there, then you'll naturally find yourself having more um, success in yoga nidra proper. So you don't have to put all your eggs in the nighttime basket. In fact, in the Tibetan tradition, most of the effort actually comes with the daytime efforts. And they have, it's a very sophisticated visualization dissolution thing that well beyond the scope of what I can talk about here. But very briefly, if, if you want to really get your hands around this um, or your mind into it, you have to work with and become familiar with the formless dimensions of your mind because dreamless is formless. Um, and you know, to recognize that, you have to work, or it's highly suggested that you work with the formless dimensions of your mind through formless meditations now. Mingyur Rinpoche, um, and in fact, in the book that's coming out that I wrote, I talk quite a bit about the practice of open awareness. That's a really powerful preparatory practice for this. That eventually matures into full-blown nature mind practices. And then when you enter nature mind practices, then you're in the domain of Kashmir Shaivism, Mahamudra, Dogchen, and the like. Okay? Thank so, you. Yeah, that's what you Yeah, if you really want to get traction, you really Thanks. want to get traction, you got to work on it with the foremost practices during the day. Okay, Miguel? Awesome. Thank yeah. Thank you. Very welcome. Okay, maybe one or two more, and then I got to run. So, excellent. All right, perfect. Well, there's two hands raised. So, ah, so we'll clock it off at two. Perfect. All right, great. Well, first up is Judith.
coming. Uh, am I here? Yep. Okay, great. Actually, you, Andrew, think, I, you think you're there, Judith, but you're actually not. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> you're actually nowhere. Does that make you feel better? Right? Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Listen, I hate to bring this conversation back because it's been so incredible. Right. But back to insomnia, your thoughts it's on insomnia. Great. And I just love the kite image. The thing is that you know, I have chronic insomnia and yeah. I always think it's because I can't, I'm unable to leave the temporal. And so there's something really blocking my, my path. Um, and also I don't feel it's in my mind. I feel it's in my body. Yes. I get to that point where my body says, I'm hit the wall. I know I Hello. won't sleep. Sorry, I've got to turn this off. Sorry. No worries. Yes. So a couple of things. One is, you know, not all insomniac situations are purely kind of cognitive. There, there can be organic or brain-based, body-based phenomenologies going on here. And so what I'm talking about when I talk about my, my version of insomnia yoga, I'm, I'm dealing with a purely phenomenological. Somebody wants to reach you. I must know. Be, must be Padmasambhava. You should pick it up. Um, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> He's actually calling you all the time, Judith. You just, yeah, okay. <laughs> you just have to pick. He's, he's trying to reach you all the time. You just have to oh, pick up, okay? But really, what, what I might recommend, if you haven't done this, um, because again, this is why, personally, I'm a big fan of integral approaches. Yes, I'm talking about my little phenomenological approach. But there are other factors, like you're talking about, that are at play here. And sometimes it, it, it's absolutely warranted to bring other skillful means to bear here. So CBTI, for instance, chronic behavioral therapy for insomnia. Listen to the interview that I did with um, Tucker Peck uh, over a year ago. He's a sleep specialist and he, an expert in CBTI. This is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy designed for insomnia that really works. And so if that is new to you and you haven't done it and you're struggling with insomnia, absolutely positively give it a look. That stuff works. It's one of the best, in fact, I'd say the best non-pharmacological approach to working with insomnia. CBT. And how do I access that? Well, first um, of all, you can Google it. Um, you can also, I'm sure Tucker, if you look at his website, uh, I'm pretty sure he does sessions. There are a lot of people now that work with CBTI. Um, so I don't know if you're a nightclub member, if, but if you are, listen to the interview yes. I did with Tucker. We talk about it there. Um, did you say Tucker? Tucker? Tucker. Tucker Peck. I also believe I talked about it a little bit. I'm a little foggy on this one with um, Kristen Lamarca because she's a PhD that works with CBTI as well. But if you just, if you just Google it, um, you'll find information and, and you can read about it. And then most importantly, you can work with somebody who actually implements these strategies. CBTI really works. I highly recommend it. Great. I've never heard of it. That's there you great. Go. There you go. Uh, one quick question. Does the Vajrasattva practice purify karma? Yes. Everything we do on the spiritual path purifies karma. The Vajrasattva practice, and again, there's many layers of that practice. Um, there's an over-the-counter short version. There's longer full-blown Vajrasattva sadhana practice. But Vajrasattva as an archetypal deity 
is principally designed as a little bit heavier hitter for purifying karma. Everything purifies karma on the path because it's designed to purify habitual pattern. Vajrasattva does it, as you know, um, in just a little bit more supercharged way. So if you have a connection to that practice, it's, it's, he's, like, he's like the archetypal, I don't know if this language means anything to you, he's like the archetypal Sambhogakaya deity. Vajrasattva is a really big deal in the pantheon of deity yogas. And so if you have a connection to him, um, I would just say go for it. It's really beautiful, powerful practice, for sure. And, and that can purify old karma, karma that's already happened. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah, Thank you. Okay. See you, Judith. Thank okay, you. One more, Andy. Last one. Perfect. And it's going to be with Joan. Hello, my friend. I so appreciate you. Hi, sweetheart. I appreciate you so much. Every time I'm with you, I'm just reminded of how lovely, how, how lovely your heart is and how generous you are with us. And so I'm going to ask you about yams. Okay. All right. Basically, um, my question has to do with how do we interrupt the process or can we? I mean, there's always the notion of impermanence. So the yam is not going to last, you know, but there's the sense of while it's happening, it feels so good. Right. And, you know, there's that sense of, um, I really have it now. Right. You right. Know, I've worked so hard and now right. it's really paid off. And in the, you minute, know, in the, in the yeah. minute you say that, it has you. Yeah. The minute you say that, it has you. So here's the way to work with this. I, I've written a lot about this. Um, I teach a lot about it because I think it's massively undertaught. And it's a massive spiritual trap. So, and again, I've, I've also asked a lot of teachers about this. So, first of all, when you're actually having the experience, celebrate the experience. Okay. You know, just celebrate it. And like, I, I, I talked to one Lama and uh, she said, oh, pat yourself on the back. Congratulations. Fantastic. So, nyams are, you know, when you leave them for what they are, they're good markers. They're good signs. And by the way, not all nyam are good experience are all um, good experiences. You know, read read the work of Alan Wallace, calming the mind, the Vajra teachings on Dujim, from Dujim Lingpa. He writes beautifully about the more shadow side of nyam. We tend to think mostly of nyam meditation experience as blissful. Literally, the classic nyams are bliss, clarity, and non-thought. But nyam classically just refers to any meditation experience. But the juicier ones, in some ways, are the more problematic just because they're so juicy. And so when you have a breakthrough experience, first of all, just be there for it 100%. You can use it as a kind of transmission or pointing out, because in fact, it is pointing out um, kind of dimensions of the awakened arena. You can use that to celebrate and inspire you to go forward. But then, like Pacho Rinpoche, Kempo Rinpoche, and so many others say, you have to let it go. Otherwise, like I, like I mentioned earlier, then it, it'll get you. You don't get it. It gets you. And so, of course, it's hard because the mind is so sticky, especially with spiritual experiences. You're going, ah, this is why I'm doing it, this whole spiritual thing. And the minute that happens, you have a new metric. You have a new bar. Oh, my meditation just reached a new plateau. You've guaranteed your misery, right? Because every time you don't have that experience, you're going to feel like you're falling short. Fundamentally, what you want to do is just relate to everything with equanimity. The good, the bad, the ugly, the blissful, all one taste. Much easier to say than to do. But, and one way to work with this is when you're feeling something really, really blissful, 
bring to mind something that feels really crappy and say, how is that crappy feeling any different from this? And then when you're feeling really, really crappy, bring back the memory of the nyam that feels really good and, how, and say, how is that any different from this? They're not. You will find what makes them different is an appropriation, the grasping or the aversion. That's the only difference. Fundamentally, they're the same. And so you celebrate it, um, and then you got to let it go. You got to reinstate the conditions that brought about the nyam in the first place, which is openness. That's what brings the nyams about, openness. And if you start to close around the nyam, you've, you've actually completely defeated the nyam. You know? So the only way to mature, the only way for experience to go to realization, nyam to go to tokpa, is you have to release it. And Pajarambache and Kimparambache go so far as to say, you nurture your meditation by destroying it. And that's beautiful. You nurture your samadhi by destroying it. What that means is you don't destroy the nyam, you don't destroy the meditation. You get rid of the storyline. You drop the storyline. You destroy all the commentary that, you know, that really this, these things can trap you for a lifetime. Taisitya Rinpoche says these are the most insidious of all spiritual traps. So I write about it um, in my book, Power and Pain. I, I have quite a section in there about nyam. Um, it's a super important topic, but that'll probably give you something to work with. Thank you. Okay. Hi, everybody. Nice to see everybody. I'll be back next week, I think, hopefully. Um, until now and between now and then, remember, keep your hands clean and your heart open. And uh, take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. Bye.